0: Welcome back to the podcast Raviuptum Ruminations. My name is Scott and I'm the host. Today's very special episode is called A Spiritual Reconstruction with Brit Hartley. Thanks for coming back to another episode of the podcast, Rami Ruminations. Today, I have a very special guest. I'm excited to bring her on. If you listen to some of the other podcasts within the umbrella of Mormon discussion, you will recognize Britt's voice from the Almost Awakened podcast. She co-hosts that with Bill Reel. Welcome to Rami Ruminations, Britt. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Such a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, this will be a fun chat. So before we get into the discussion that we're going to have, which I'm excited about, I always offer my guests the opportunity to share as much or as little of their background as they'd like. Where do you find yourself in this like Mormon podcasting scene? What brought you to where we are today? You can say as much or as little about that as you'd like.
1: Yeah, that's such a long story. I'm going to, I'll keep that as short as possible here. Um, Cause I do want to get to some of the things that you had planned for today. So I was raised LDS. I was raised just kind of in a strict, um, TBM kind of Mormon household. Um, I kind of had three major faith transitions in my life that kind of got me to where I am today. So when I was about 15, uh, the Strength of Youth pamphlet had come out and, um, you know, it was pretty prescriptive. And I was always kind of a thinker and wanted to know why this pamphlet just gave me a lot of angst and rebellion. I just could, this was like God being presented to me. And if I asked questions, it was just kind of like, well, God says and be obedient. And it just, I didn't have good words for it yet. Cause I'm just an angsty teenager, but it just came out in, in rebellion. And eventually that rebellion led to me being kicked out of my home when I was 16. And so that was kind of, a uh, step one of faith crisis of like, I have lost everything. Um, and it was at that time I was living at an aunt and uncles and I found kind of nuanced Christianity and new, what we would call now is nuanced Mormonism. And as I'm studying and I'm reading, cause I'm trying to figure like, I'm trying to figure out what do I do with my life? Like I have nothing, I've lost everything. What do I believe? What do I do? And I find, um, just kind of by luck, I find um, instead of like four strengths of youth, Christianity, Mormonism, I find kind of the deeper stuff, right? I, I find some of the better theology. And for me at the time, it was like a life raft because I had lost my family. I had lost. I had lost everything. It was like, if Mormonism can be this thing, like this really beautiful theology over here underneath it, then maybe I can engage with it again. And so I re-entered Mormonism, went to BYU, Idaho. And so by the time I was about 17 on, I was already like a nuanced Mormon.
0: Now, before we get too far, what was this material or what were these books that you found or, and, and were they given to you by somebody? Were you guided in this path?
1: Yeah. My, um, uncle that I was staying with was a bishop. And so he had some things in his church library, but it was really what I would call now is just like really light apologetic. So it was like Robert Millett, BYU professor and C.S. Lewis. Um, and then some of like the more, the old Mormon intellectuals, um, Hubie Brown, that kind of Mormonism. And so it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't really strong apologetic work yet, but it was at least enough like, hey, there's more to this than the For Strength of Youth pamphlet of like God says, don't get a tattoo or whatever the thing was, right? There was at least like more meat to it than what I had experienced. So it was enough for me to like get back on board. So I go to BYU-Idaho. I'm a nuanced Mormon. I'm studying history and philosophy there. Um and I, I kind of carve out a little life for myself as a, as a nuanced Mormon, you know, separating practice from doctrine and kind of enjoyed just being that member that could take something and try to bring out the most beautiful kind of soul work theology you could do with that. And that worked for me for a while. And then uh, in 2011, about 2010, I had my first child. And this was, you know, after some time of teaching history and, um, it was about eight years that I was married before, before I had my first child. And so for the first time I had the time I was home by myself, um, and I had the time to take things off my shelf and I took polygamy off my shelf (laughs) and it was like, you know, kaboom and that, you know, experienced a pretty good faith transition. And at that time. Uh, was no longer a believer, but uh, appreciated uh, the good things that Mormonism has for developing spirituality and kind of eschewed the things that were not healthy for spirituality. And I continued to attend from time to time. I taught seminary even after that. I just used it. I used it as an opportunity to like, hey, I'm just going to use whatever the text is and do the best spiritual message that I can put together for these teens. So even as a non-believing kind of post member, I still really loved teaching um, and learning about and reading good spirituality and separating it from bad spirituality. And I did that for a semester. I was called to the principal's office many times. It could never have been a long-term career for me, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoy working with you. And then kind of uh, a few years ago, That deconstruction ball just kept going. And so not only am I deconstructing, you know, Mormonism or Christianity or religion, I start deconstructing like, is there a self and free will and, uh, God. And, you know, that deconstruction ball just kept going for me until it was like, you know, nothing, nihilism, whatever. And then, uh, gathered new tools in that journey to, uh, to reorder my spiritual home. And so now I work as a spiritual director and I help people with any part of that process. So deconstruction, reconstruction, nihilism, existential crisis. I've kind of done the gamut and I've developed, you know, a lot of tools along the way. And so I get a lot of meaning and purpose now in my life by being a spiritual director and helping people with that. I podcast with Bill Real, as you say, as you said, and um, have a lot of projects I'm excited about just to try to help people do spira- spirituality better wherever they are.
0: Nihilism is typically seen in this negative connotation as a bad thing. But honestly, for me, when I hit that point in my spiritual deconstruction, it was liberating. And it was it was a point where I could start from from nothing and build from there in a healthy way. And I, I I think for me nihilism was my favorite point of my spiritual deconstruction.
1: Looking back, it was I think it was the hardest for me. Um, there were I, I I coach a lot on the four existential human fears: so fear of isolation, fear of death, fear of meaninglessness, fear of freedom. And usually there's one that will really like kick your butt, like, the you know, uh, but just like any kind of story in the hero's journey, the place that you're most afraid to go is the place that you grow from the most is the place that like, once you conquer that door, you don't live in fear anymore. You're creating something, uh, on a really sturdy foundation because you've already kind of faced your fear, you know, head on. And so, um, yeah, ni- nihilism is, is hard. It can be really debilitating, but if you kind of grow to meet that challenge, it can be a really beautiful way to begin a-, a really thriving, flourishing spiritual life.
0: I love that you mentioned the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell, one of my favorite thinkers in this realm. I read his, the book, the hero of a thousand faces at the beginning of my spiritual deconstruction, if you will. And then again, at the end, when I was trying to pick up the pieces and trying to stay Mormon, if you will, it's interesting because my perspective on the book was so different as a TBM than to someone who had already deconstructed everything. At the end, I was desperately trying to make it work, but it didn't go that way at all for me. But it was a really beautiful experience because it, where I saw the first reading, everything as these, these connections between all religions and all faiths as pointing to Mormonism and, and, and to you know, the light of Christ, if you will. And on my second reading, I saw it more as an interconnectedness of all people instead of trying to pigeonhole his ideas into an LDS theology.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Anyway, for me, it was a really beautiful experience.
1: Yeah. Whenever I'm working with a client and they say, I'm really afraid of this, or I, I, I don't want to deal with this yet. I always tag. I always kind of make a note of it because I know, okay, that's where we most need to go because the place where you fear the most in every part of the hero's journey, you don't get the treasure or the sword or the wisdom or the princess or whatever the reward is until you face what, what's often is your, your darkest cave. Yeah.
0: Let's switch gears here to do this segue. Most people, you know, from maybe a a vocal majority on the Reddit and, you know, in these spaces, they deconstruct religion, they leave the church, and they land in atheism or agnosticism, and then they never touch spirituality again, or at least for a long while. They don't incorporate some of the spiritual aspects of the religion they left in their lives anymore. So why is spirituality important? Why should someone who is, you know, let's, let's say the target audience is that atheist who doesn't want anything to do with religion anymore. Why is spirituality
1: important for that person? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I work with that kind of triggered group quite a bit. So I feel like I I know them really well. And it's a real problem that what happens with, um, I I work a lot with the, with the analogy of a spiritual home because I think everyone has one. Um, whether you've thought about it or not, you kind of have rituals. You kind of already have beliefs. You kind of all, you already have core values. You already have, um, know, things that really dictate how, how you make choices in the world, right? And so what happens when you're deconstructing is if you've built all these things like morality and meaning and purpose and community and ritual, and you've built all of those walls on this foundation of Mormonism being capital T true, and then you find out some things that shake that foundation, the whole house can come tumbling down and that can feel like freedom for a while that can feel like a, you know i don't need a, i don't need someone telling me what to do and all of that but eventually when you're talking about a flourishing human life you're going to need to have meaning and purpose just we know that we know that just from what we know about human happiness uh, and studies in the human brain that when you're talking about facing death of yourself or your loved ones and suffering and big, big questions, you're going to need community. You're going to need rituals for your family. You're going to need a story that contain that, that can contain that level of suffering. You're going to need meaning and purpose. You're going to need a place to do shadow work so that you're not just driven by, you know, your unconscious fears. You're eventually going to come up against life and gonna need those tools. And the issue with the de- deconstructed people is that it's as if the house has fallen, but the scaffolding is still there. Like the Mormon scaffolding, the Mormon brain is still there. And the Mormon tools also are, are still there too, too, but they feel poisoned because there's all this religious trauma. And so what I sense with these deconstructed people is not only has their house fallen down, which can feel like a lot of things. It can feel freeing, it can feel paralyzing, but then you also have some old scaffolding, just kind of the old way of thinking that you haven't kind of um, dealt with yet. And then when you try to develop those tools again, uh, there's like an allergy to it because it's mixed in with all this religious trauma. And so I meet people in this space who get stuck. They want to rebuild their spiritual home, But how do I do it? How do I even know up from down anymore? How do I know right from wrong? How do, you know, all of these questions? And so, uh, what I do now as a spiritual director is how can I, um, get you new tools and new scaffolding to rebuild in a way that feels super, super safe? A lot of times that means not using the supernatural at all. Right, developing spirituality where we don't use supernatural words because that's you're just too allergic to that, right? So you can do that with or without the supernatural. I often work work with clients who choose to not, but don't feel a lot of support in that space, right? Because atheists, uh, you know, as a group, we can tend to be really snotty and uh, <laughs> look down on everyone else for their silly ways. Uh, But I also meet a lot of atheists who are that publicly, but then privately, they're really struggling with some kind of existential angst or question, but they don't want their believing friends and believing family to know because they want to show that everything's bright and gloomy. And so it's so frustrating that like people in the church will pretend to be happy, but people outside the church want to pretend to be happy too. And it's like, guys we're all in this together. We all need tools. We all need to do spirituality. Let's just try to find the best, you know, the healthiest ways to do that and stop pretending. And so, yeah, so I'm all about getting the best tools, especially to that group, because they have a lot of religious trauma, um, so that they can rebuild a spiritual home. Cause I do think it's essential for human flourishing in light of suffering and death. That is a reality.
0: How would you define the word spirituality then? Cause we're using this apart from religion is what I get from how you're describing this.
1: Yeah. I just use that as connection. So it's a deep connection to self and then a deep connection to outside of self, something bigger than you. For some people that includes the supernatural Um, for some people, it's just, you know, the collective consciousness of, of, you know, we're so interconnected that um, it's a kind of God it's just all of us without having that to be without having that have to be supernatural. Um, but you do kind of need something bigger than yourself when you're dealing with morality or meaning or purpose or story, you're part of something that's a lot bigger than you and it's healthier mentally to be a part of something that's bigger than you. And so finding ways to connect deeper and deeper inside yourself. So you understand yourself more and then, um, you know, More and more intimate with the outside world. Uh, we call that, sp- I, I would call that spirituality. So, a lack of spirituality would just be disconnection. And that can happen inside and outside of religion. I meet people who are um, really active in religion, really disconnected from their self and others. It can happen in or out.
0: So disconnected from the self, disconnected from the community or the collective unconscious, if you will. You mentioned a term, and this is going to be, I think, from the previous question. You said that there's a hesitation to do the shadow work. What do you mean by shadow work in this in this space of, of reconstructing spirituality?
1: Yeah, this is an issue that comes up a lot with the younger generation, especially. Religion will always have at least opportunities for you to do shadow work. And what that means is seeing the part of yourself that you don't want that you don't want to see, and you also really don't want others to see, right? And so religion, you know, it's not really known for that work, but there's at least opportunities to really dig into a story. I often use Jonah and the whale um, for shadow work. I'll also use um, The Prodigal Son is a really good story for shadow work. How a Mystic. A mystic is just someone who really just sees things from the perspective of the soul. How a mystic looks at a story like the Good Samaritan is that uh, there's a part of you who works really hard and makes your name really mean something, and that's your ego, and it's part of you. And there's also a part of you that wants to push boundaries and wants to squander and wants to, you know hang out wherever. And, uh, the point of that story from a mystic point of view is to be the father. And can you embrace both? Can you hold space for both those things? So what happens, especially with the younger generation, uh, Gen Z especially is that if they leave religion and often that will turn into politics, politics kind of will fill that space that religion used to be. We know that political, um, Activity with Gen Z is part of their spiritual life as a generation, but the problem with politics is that it never uh, introduces you to your shadow self. You never have to do shadow work because the other side is always the enemy and not you. And so it's something that really the younger generation is struggling with, with how do I make sense of this kind of the parts of me that I don't want anyone to know and religion has some tools for that. Uh, Politics really has none. And so that's why I've always said, you know, if I had to raise my children in an organized religion or in a political party, I would raise them in an organized religion because at least you can get someone teaching them some kind of soul lesson at some point in that religion. Right. Uh, But yeah, shadow work, really, it's just, we have... You know, in evolution, we have um, parts of ourselves that are selfish and parts of ourselves that are social. What religion does is it tells us, you know, that the social part of you is the good self or the angel or the, your spirit and the bad part of you is the demon or the devil or the natural man or the, you know, however they term that. But really they're both natural parts of you and um, it can be really healthy for anyone in organized religion, outside of organized religion, everyone needs to find ways. Can I make space for my own humanity? Can I find wholeness within myself? And I used to do all kinds of, you know, love yourself kind of affirmation things, self love things, but I never believed it until I did shadow work. Because until I could look my devil in the eye, my, you know, myself and make space for it and allow it to be because I'm human. I couldn't really believe that I loved myself. So shadow work is just really, really, it really helps you become whole, which is really important for people coming out of religion, because often religion has messed up with that idea of wholeness by purity culture and all the other things.
0: And requiring an external entity to become whole rather than it it being an internalized process.
1: Right. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So you do this life coaching and you've got a number of courses. What, um, what brought my attention and and the impetus maybe for, for me reaching out to you was, um, the spiritual reconstruction course that you just reintroduced or was this something that you had done previous to this?
1: No, this is, this is new. This is, I've worked on it for the past year. So what I'd learned was that as I was, um, coaching people and doing spiritual direction, I started kind of developing patterns of doing similar things. Some of it may just be be because I mostly work with people on the Mormon spectrum. And so we have similarities. Some of it is just good spirituality, but I just came to realize that I'm doing kind of these same kind of reframings over and over. So maybe if I just gather that all together, I can make a course so that you don't have to schedule to meet with me. And, uh, you know, you can just in, At night, you can just go and do some soul work uh, rather than I have to meet with someone. And so I could reach more people with spiritual reconstruction that I can do by coaching people one by one. And so it has um, 10 sections of really what I usually do with people when they have deconstructed so these are this class is really for people who have already deconstructed and you know you've already dealt with polygamy like we don't talk about polygamy anymore like we don't um if i'm I'm assuming if you're ready to reconstruct and you're thinking what next you've already done some deconstructing so we don't have to like Uh, there are plenty of places on the internet where you can go and for five years, go down the rabbit hole of Mormon history and just listen (laughs) to nothing else, but early Mormon history, right. Um, where this class comes in is okay. What next? Like, okay, I got it. What next? And so I do, um, so we go over rituals, how to rituals are super science. It's really just a super, effective way to process things. So for example, if you, um, they did this study where they put two groups of people to in a room and they told each group, you're going to, someone's going to win $300 and they actually walk up to a person and give them $300 and everybody else is kind of disappointed. And so for one group, they kind of had to rate how disappointed they were and how sad they were. And the other group, they made up a ritual. They made them write their feelings and crumble it up and put some salt on it and throw it in a fire, just like a totally made up ritual. And they rated after that, that they were just less disappointed. They were over it. Right. Even with a made up ritual. And so, again, going back to this group of deconstructed people. If you have deconstructed and now do not have any rituals because you're religious, you're, you're traumatized by some of these rituals. You're missing out on a tool that really helps you process things scientifically helps you process things. So we go into your spiritual home and you have all these boxes of rituals that you've inherited from your past Christmas, expectations, blessings, traditions, rites of passage. And we go through it and say, okay, what can you keep? What, what do you want to repurpose and what do you need to let go of? And you kind of set and you kind of actually go through that process of what are my rituals with myself and my family and whatever, because it's a good tool. It's a good tool. So I, there's like 10 of these things that, that that I go through in the course, um, where we really break down some kind of spiritual tool and then how can we rebuild this authentically for you?
0: When I deconstructed, my wife is still an active member of the church. She's very nuanced, but she's an active member. It took her a long time to understand why I still wanted to participate after having deconstructed, um, specifically in the blessing of of our daughter that was a couple years ago, or the baptism of our son that was again a couple years ago. She didn't understand why the rituals were still important to me, even if I didn't believe in them. And it was kind of what you're talking about. I I wanted to participate in the blessing because... It's like an introduction of our new child to our community, to our family. And it's, it was like a welcoming of her into our lives, ritually, if you will, even though I didn't look at it the, in the traditional sense.
1: Yeah, I, I totally resonate with that story. I remember I have adopted children and at the time, even as a non-believer with my oldest adopted child, I wanted to do um, a ceiling because really I had nothing else in a very, very Mormon family to bring my family together and take this adopted child and do a ritual that says you are part of our tribe now, right? So I I went to it the same way that you did, which is, I don't know if anything priesthood or metaphysical is going on here, but just the ritual itself of everyone taking time out of their day to welcome this child into this family, especially this adopted child, that you are part of our tribe now. It was beautiful, it was sacred, it was meaningful. My later two children, I had my temple recommend removed by then and so I couldn't, but I went with the same thing that I don't have a secular, you know, ritual that can replace that can replace this for this family. And so I went and did that and I have no shame in doing that because rituals are very, very powerful.
0: You said you had it removed?
1: I didn't walk into the bishop's office and say, here's my temple recommend. At the time, I said, when they asked, uh, do you support anything against the teachings of the church? I said, yes, I really stand with um, my LGBTQ brothers and sisters, and I think this is wrong, and I give money and voice to saying that this, this is wrong, and because of that, it was taken, and so I, I wasn't able to do that ritual with my youngest two.
0: Your word choice stood out to me, so I.
1: <laughs> I wanted it clear. It was taken from me because I probably, I probably would have still done both. I probably still would have done a sealing with my younger two, just because that ritual is so beautiful.
0: I think there's a lot of secular wisdom, if you will, in these rituals. If not the spiritual or metaphysical side. And, and so I, I appreciated them as well. So when you were talking about that, it really resonated with some of the ideas I had when I was trying to be a secular Mormon, if you will. We talked about ritual. What are the other sections of your spiritual reconstruction course?
1: Yeah. So the next one is exploring death and the kind of the four existential human fears that that I talked about earlier, because a lot of times I have clients come in and, and talk about uh, you know, we have these ways that we mourn in the Mormon community where we tell ourselves a story and we wear this and we say these things and then We almost kind of skip over grieving because we tell ourselves this story. And if that story has changed for you, then all of a sudden, oh, I'm having to re-grieve all the people that I've lost, or I'm now really not sure how I feel about death. That can be really debilitating. So we do, we talk about death, we talk about morality and ethics, rewriting your sacred story, uh, a lot of time on meaning and purpose. Shadow and inner child work is something that I do with most clients because at some point in there, you may have lost your inner voice, uh, because this is a religious community that puts a lot of emphasis on, um, external hierarchy kind of revelation, right? And
0: conformity.
1: Conformity, especially for women. You'd be shocked at how early women kind of lose their voice because as, as even as a child, your father makes the decisions and then you go see your bishop and there's men on the walls and you've just kind of internally accept that that men have an access to God that you don't. That happens really early with women. And so we have to redevelop um, that relationship with inner child. The, the signs of awe and transcendence, the seven kinds of contemplation, which one speaks to you. So you can develop your own kind of contemplation where you're regularly having on transcendent experiences, uh, community and inspiration, how to rebuild your tribe. Uh, one great thing about Mormonism is that you meet every week and you have at least the opportunity to hear something inspiring. That's great. It may not always be inspiring, but at least you have the opportunity, right? So rebuilding a tribe, rebuilding who are your inspirational prophets, um, and then putting it all together. We talk about the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So in most textbooks, that is self-actualization. But before he died, there was one more category that he was working on that he believed was there. And it um, wasn't published until after he died. And so it didn't make it into all the textbooks. But the category that he was working on that he believed was on top of self-actualization in that pyramid was self-transcendence, which is becoming all that you become, uh, becoming a um, the 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 best you that you can become and living life as if it's art so you're creating beauty and meeting life in each moment in this really self-transcendent way where you're not kind of focused in on how you look and how it appears you're just really creating beauty in in, in each moment and so we put it all together into this vision a map Um, a structure so that you have a sense of your own spirituality rather than like we talked about before just kind of being pummeled by deconstruction and not having anything to replace it
0: that that last point stands out to me the most i i love this this idea of living life as if you're creating art that's just is beautiful
1: It's kind of this letting go like, okay, I'm going to die and okay, there's a lot of suffering in life and okay, I have a brain that is really self-absorbed and it's really just when you transcend that and you live your life as if it's art. What do I want to create with this life? I have this one life. I don't know. I don't know all the reasons why. I don't know about before. I don't know about after, but if I'm here, I'm going to create the most beautiful life that I can imagine that kind of life.
0: How would that impact someone's decision-making process if that is their motive or is that, you know, they've, they've hit nihilism and they've worked through all these steps and now they're trying to live their life in a way to create art. How, how would that impact someone's day-to-day life?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It's a really big shift for for someone on the Mormon's perspective because again, we talk about the scaffolding. So what happens so much in the deconstruction is that because we were raised in a church that says this is true, therefore here's all your morality and here's your story. The first thing that Mormons will post-Mormons will often do when they've deconstruction when they've deconstructed is they have this old scaffolding that says if I can just find out what's true, then I'll know how to structure my life. And I got stuck in that thought loop for a couple years of just like, if I can just figure out the ultimate reality of the universe, I'll know how to structure my life. Right. It sounds absurd when I say it out loud, but I was kind of doing that. Right. And so it's this shift of accepting that, uh, We just don't know a lot about ultimate reality. And so in the face of that, in the face of we might never know what's capital T true, how are you gonna live your life anyway? And it's that shift that's really freeing for the post-Mormon community because they feel like, uh, I just met with a client this week who's in a mixed faith marriage and his wife has a very clear script of this is right and wrong. The wife is um, active in the church. I've, you know, the wife has a very clear script of what right and wrong and the stories and the teachings and the beliefs. But he felt he had nothing to offer because he said, I don't know what's true. Therefore, I have nothing to offer. And so it was this old Mormon scaffolding of, okay, can we model something different? Can you model to your children what spiritual, what spirituality looks like in the unknown? what spirituality looks like in ambiguity, what spiritually what spirituality looks like as far as exploration rather than having to know. And so I talked to him about developing that side of it because he was still really stuck on, I can't say anything because I don't know what's true. And so he was really stuck there. And so that shift of instead of it being focused on capital T truth, which is where you can get stuck, because we just honestly just don't know a lot (laughs) about ultimate reality and moving towards beauty that I'm here, I might as well create a really beautiful, meaningful life anyway. Um, That can be a really freeing shift because then you don't have to know.
0: Well, it sounds like a tool that I I feel would be useful both within a religious community such as the the Mormon faith or outside. There's so many aspects where the church uses thought-stopping techniques to discourage people from pursuing this unknown that we're addressing. If the believer had these same sort of tools to exist in a space where there is a lot of unknown, I think it would be beneficial to both parties
1: Definitely. And it's something actually I've heard Ter- Terrell Givens say before. Someone will give him like a QA. I listen to him sometimes. And uh, Fiona's a good friend of mine, his wife. And he, he's got a, you know, he's got a podcast and he'll speak. And sometimes he'll get q as on like, he'll get a situation. What do I do? Do X or Y? What's right and what's wrong? And he said in response to one of those that, you know, he said, when I make a decision... Uh, and I'm getting caught in what's right and what's wrong as if it's could possibly be so binary, binary in a complex world. And he'll ask himself, what decision is more beautiful? What decision, what decision makes more beauty in the world? And that can kind of get him out of that, um, kind of thought loop where you get really stuck because most of our decisions have pros and cons on both sides and have, and have um, moral values on both sides too. And so it's a really great way to kind of get out of binary thinking is to think which one really creates more beauty.
0: That's fascinating. I love that. You talk about reframing ethics and you talk about within the religious community, you come from a space of story to rules. And then from these stories that create these rules, you have this this form of being, or this form, this this way of living your life, how do you reframe that within a post-believing or even nuanced believing uh, perspective?
1: Yeah. So this, there's a couple things that I do with morality and ethics. So I'll come at this from a couple angles. But the quote that you're talking about is something that I learned um, really from mystics. Mystics will always do this. So organized religion will always say this is the story. Adam and Eve, Muhammad, whatever the story is, this is the story that start, that's the first thing that you learn. And then after that, because this is the story, here's the list of commandments. Here's the list of do's and don'ts of this religion. You will learn that next. And then kind of, as you get more advanced, you learn to kind of let go of some of those do's and don'ts and live kind of from a place of being, So this would be Jesus saying something like, of course, I'm going to help someone on Sunday, even though the law says I'm not supposed to. Like, of course I am. Right. And so it's, that's the progression that most organized religions take. And so what mysticism of any religion, uh, any kind of mystic or wisdom tradition will do is flip it upside down. And so instead of getting the story right first, we're just going to start with being, And that is morality from my being that I'm that when I'm connected to my deep humanity, when I'm deeply connected to myself, I don't need a rule that says not to steal from you, because I know in my being that I am you and you are me. And I know what that feels like to have something taken from you. And I wouldn't wish that on you. Right. So you start there. And then the commandments just become really flexible, right? Because you just don't need them as much. They're just not really prescriptive. Um, And then you can go back to story and that's a place to play, right? Our stories, there's a reason that millions of people are listening to Jordan Peterson give biblical lectures on YouTube that are all over the religious map, many non-religious, specifically because he's telling these biblical stories in a way that makes you understand your own psychology better by the time he's done, right? And so this is what mystics do. Let's just start with being. Then the commandments become a little bit more flexible and not so like thou shalt not, right? Because the world is just too complex for that. And then we go into story to play, to understand. connect, to deepen. And so mystics love stories, mystics love Jesus, mystics love the scriptures, but they just don't hold to them with that kind of rigidity um, like you do if you were to start with the quote unquote true story. Right. And so flipping that upside down can be really helpful for people because you can see, I still have a sense of morality, even if I don't know, even if I don't have a capital T true story. Because I'm starting from I'm starting from this Jesus morality, which is morality from my being, and so that's how you can start to make sense of right and wrong. Another thing that I do is going over your core values. If you're a business and you're trying to decide where you want to cut costs, that very much depends on what are your core values. That's what any business person would come into your business and do. If your core values are loyalty to your customers, well, you're going to maybe cut those costs. You're going to maybe do some shipping. Changes to be loyal to your customers. If it's, you know, women workers and that's your core value, then you're going to increase wages for them, right? So some of those decisions in places that are really gray, you can really lean on your core values because that's really where you're going to flourish because that is you know, when we used to be smaller tribes, everybody had different core values because it helped us survive, right? There's no tribe in existence that were all artists. <laughs> they, they would have died or all hunters or all, you know, shaman. They were all different because you need each one to survive. So you can actually lean on your core values because it's what you have to offer the conversation that leads us to more morality. And then unpacking guilt and shame. So guilt is a course corrector. It's there for a reason. Uh, when you have guilt, you've done something that's violated one of your values and you can recognize it and fix it. Um, shame is just not helpful, right? Shame will make you hide it. It will push things in, you know, into your subconscious and into your shadow and it's all messy. So unpacking that can be really helpful. And then just focusing, yeah, on your inner compass. And, and your inner voice again. So that's kind of some of the work that I do around morality and ethics so that you still feel like you have a way to make decisions, even when you don't have a list of commandments anymore.
0: As you describe this, this trajectory from story to rules to being, it gives me the impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, but within more fundamentalist um, belief systems, they get stuck in this transition from rules to being. At least that's the impression that I get from how you describe this, where they have the story, you know, the Joseph Smith first vision, and then these are the rules that follow because of this first vision. But they don't transcend into a more nuanced view of the rules because it gets stuck on, you have to follow X, Y, and Z. Is my is my understanding of that correct? Or is that...
1: Yeah. And that, that's true of organized religion because it's true of human psychology, right? There's just, you're more likely to kind of cling to things because to be honest, we're just thrown into this world without really knowing why we're here or what we should do and all these things. And we'd like to think as we, as like we're adults and we can handle that, but really psychologically it's like we're a we're a child dropped into a mall and yeah you're going to have a binky you're going to have a blanket it's scary it's terrifying to be a human and not really know like why am i here right
0: none of us consented to being born
1: none of us consented to be here we don't know what's <laughs> going on right it's it's very confusing to be a human and so even when we're talking about maslow when we're talking about later stages of development you have to Really have love and belonging. You have to have some of those lower development areas um, really nailed. And unfortunately, because of how uh, messy this world is, I don't think it's people's fault that they that that we have so many people not able to reach kind of self actualization and self transcendence. You really have to feel safe in order to even tempt taking away some of those binkies um, because it's, it's just really terrifying to be a human. It wasn't until I kind of experienced nihilism that I understood, Oh, this is why the brain works so hard to keep order and keep a story and, you know, limit the amount of decision-making because this is absolutely paralyzing. There's a reason that our brains um, function the way that they do, where they just cling to whatever, gives us order and structure in a world that's really chaotic.
0: Well, I've got a couple more questions for you. So I want the listeners to know how they can reach out to you. Where can they find this course? Or if they're interested, how can they uh, reach out to you to maybe start this relationship with you? Where can the listeners find Britt Hartley?
1: So the best place would be my website, which is nononsensespirituality.com. And you can find my podcast there. You can find my course there. I'm working on a course now uh, for youth, like a Gen Z youth course for, uh, cause I just have so many parents who say, uh, you know, I'm okay with my spirituality, but now I have no idea what to do with my teenager. Um, and so I've been developing that and I'm in talks with Uplift to be able to do some teen resources there. So I'm really excited about that. Very cool. There'll be links on the website also, if you want to do coaching. So what spiritual directors do Uh, which is different from therapy. So it's about a two-year program. I have a master's degree in uh, the future of American religion. And then I had a two-year spiritual director program. So it's therapy that is only for this thing. So if you want to talk about like your sex life in your marriage, I will refer you out to, you know, Natasha Helfer-Parker or Lisa Butterworth or all these other amazing women, Cami Hurst. Um, but if you just want to talk about this kind of stuff, right, your spiritual home, your thoughts, um, places where people get stuck in deconstruction and reconstruction, it can often be more um, effective than therapy. Because if I, I meet people all the time who've been in therapy, but if they weren't especially if they were never LDS, they'll not understand this kind of Mormon scaffolding that you have. Whereas I can go in and I can see, oh, the reason that you don't feel like you, like this guy I had this week, the reason you don't feel like you have anything to offer is because you feel like you need the truth in order to say something, right? That's a Mormon created thought. And so spiritual directors, especially one's and when we when i say spiritual director it means spiritual we offer spiritual direction we're a companion so we walk with you in your spiritual journey so if you want to if you want to hey i really want to explore buddhism can we explore this together i don't know anything about it or i really want to deconstruct this or i really want to know uh, my mixed faith marriage, or I'm thinking, or I'm having an existential crisis. Any of that—that's really soul work. That's where spiritual directors really stand out over maybe a therapist, where you'll pay more, but they won't know as much about kind of some of that soul space. And there's also also ethical limits. So a therapist would not, for example, yeah, to
0: what they can and can't say on those subjects.
1: Yeah. So a therapist also like would never give a blessing that would be inappropriate, but there's been times with clients, especially female clients where I've spent some time with them and I'll write or record like a blessing just from my soul to their soul. And that's really probably inappropriate for a therapist to do, but completely appropriate for a spiritual director to do because we're just sharing soul space together. So if that interests you, uh, there's also links to, um, I take clients on Thursdays, and you can, and there's links to uh, be able to sign up for that. So, all of that is on no spiritualitycom And then, if you want to listen to more, uh, Almost Awakened is the podcast that I do with Bill Real, and I, I spend a lot of time hanging out there.
0: So, then, last question while I've got you, what would be. Britt Hartley's required reading for a post-Mormon looking into spirituality.
1: Oh, that is so good. I'm
0: throwing this one at you without any prep work, but.
1: The thing that I find the most helpful for the post-deconstructed is to do spirituality in the safest way possible, which means for, like, there may be a God, right? But if you have religious trauma, it may be too much to even get there right because a lot of that is going to be really triggering for a long time maybe for the rest of your life because someone stood in between you and God for so long that that may feel just too triggering and so the the places that I the books that I find the most helpful for spirituality post deconstruction are ones where you don't require any beliefs about the supernatural or any beliefs about um what the ultimate reality story is. Because then you can just look at the science and say, oh, it's really good science to have a ritual. What's a ritual that I do in my life that can remind me of my highest self? That's a very safe entry point That will have the fewest triggers possible so two of my favorite would be spiritual atheist by nick jenkel we're gonna have him on our podcast soon very cool and then uh rational mystic rational mysticism is another one anything where they're trying to do the science of spirituality even if that's not where you stay, or even if there really is a God, to me, that's like the safest way to step back into the pool of spirituality because nothing, there'll be no truth claims required of you. And that can be often the healthiest place to take the first step is just to lean on the science and build from there.
0: Well, thank you so much for, ha- for coming onto the show. This has been a pleasure to chat. I know the listeners are going to love this sort of an, an idea. From time to time, I have mentioned that I am a spiritual person, but also an atheist. And I've gotten questions about that. And so I, I wanted to bring someone on who would be much more knowledgeable on this aspect than I am. So thank you so much for coming on and, expl- and explaining both where you're coming from and some of the tools that you've used to help people along this journey.
1: It's such a pleasure, Scott.
0: That concluded my chat with Britt Hartley about spiritual reconstruction. It was a pleasure to have her on the podcast. I enjoy her presentation of spirituality. As she said, if you're interested in finding more about this course that she puts on for those looking for more spiritual direction in their life after having deconstructed uh, formalized religion, go to her website, No Nonsense Spirituality, where you can find information about this course. She's actually, and this is as of um, October of 2022, she's running a discount on it right now. So if you hurry, you might be able to get to get it for a cheaper price than normal. My, uh, my wife and I are interested in this course and so we'll probably end up picking it up during this sale. So wherever you find yourself out there today, running late to an appointment, don't stress too much, you'll get there. I hope that you have an excellent day.